turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 3, the first six verses. This is 1658, page 1657, continuing on to the next page as well. 1657 in your Pew Bible. It's also in your large print sheets. Revelation chapter 3, reading the, the first six verses. Here now, the reading of God's most holy word. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, beloved people of God, we now turn to Revelation chapter 3 today as part of this series in the book of Revelation. You know in chapter 1 we saw with the eyes of faith the glorious risen Christ walking amongst the seven candlesticks or the seven lampstands, which of course are symbols of the seven churches in Asia Minor or what is today the country of Turkey. So in chapters 2 and 3 then, these seven particular churches, it could be regional churches, could be what we would call presbytery, but in any case, these seven particular churches then, each one is addressed by a different letter from Jesus himself. Wouldn't it be great to get a letter from Jesus? Actually, we've got, we've got a whole Bible that's from Jesus. Isn't that great? But can you imagine getting it addressed to you personally like this, right? But of course, five of these seven are going to have some things that we might not like to hear. And that is certainly true of today. As we've already seen, Ephesus, the church that had lost its first love, not just lost it, but left it. Smyrna, now that was only praise. It was not condemned. It was the faithful church. Pergamum, the church that was refusing to exercise discipline. Thyatira, that was open to mystic tendencies, that is to say, to other kinds of so-called revelation 
that would supplant, that would replace the clear teaching of the Word of God. And now Sardis, Sardis, the church, my friends, that according to Jesus is about to die. As we think of Sardis, uh, first of all, we're going, if we're, remember, we're sort of going, we're sort of going clockwise there in southwestern Turkey. We're sort of going almost a clockwise direction, if you will. So we're sort of coming up the coast. We're somewhat inland from the coast, but we're, we're coming up, as it were. And remember, we went to Thyatira, which is to the, um, uh, to the east of Smyrna, and now we're turning south-southeast about 30 miles to Sardis. So that's where we are today, the city of Sardis. Now Sardis had been a great military city. Originally, it had a bunch of barbarians there rather than civilized people. Interestingly, the city of Sardis was a natural fortress. So think of a, children, think of a castle, okay? Uh, you know that a ca what a castle looks like with the moat around it. You know that that's a fortress. That's a fort. Well, this was sort of a natural fortress, the city of Sardis. It was on top of a mountain with 1,500-foot cliffs. My, my. Talk about the bluff here. This is quite a bluff. 1,500-foot cliffs. So you, if you have the height you normally have the best position from a military perspective. There was only one narrow approach to the city which could easily be defended. But would you believe it? Not once, but twice. This fortress was taken by stealth, by secret action. A man by the name of Acrisus, who was of legendary wealth, so as you hear the term as rich as Croesus, he had attacked Cyrus, King Cyrus in Persia, and after being badly defeated by, by Cyrus, uh, he uh, pursued him into Lydia and besieged Sardis. Cyrus rested serenely one night, only to discover in the morning that the enemy had conquered had conquered the Acropolis, had conquered that fortress. Over the course of time, you see, what had been a seemingly solid rock face had become cracked, so that one at a time, once you think about this now, this at night, one at a time, soldiers could climb up. It was done at night so as to avoid detection. And of course, even a child, even one of you young people dropping a small stone on top of a soldier's head would have led to his death, but they weren't detected. It was done secretly at night. Shockingly, the same thing was done 330 years later when Antiochus the Great took the city. Um, a man, one of the historians wrote how Lagoras, who had considerable experience in war, came forward to say that generally cities fall to an enemy most easily by means of neglect by its inhabitants who become indifferent because they trust to their natural or artificial defenses. 
let me just pause here a moment and say, is that not where we are not in this country? We're the most powerful country on the face of the earth. Well, maybe. But when we trust that military might, the Lord has a way of showing that people with much less power than we may end up defeating us. And so we become indifferent. We become lackadaisical. We become careless, if you will. So Lagoras observed where the vultures were. You know what vultures are? Those, those birds that, uh, that prey on, on dead bodies? He, he saw where the vultures were, which was a clue as to which spot was unguarded. By night, he went to examine the possibilities, and then he and his men climbed up scaling ladders one night after the moon had set, surprised the fort, and captured the city. So twice, this seemingly impregnable fortress, one that could not be taken, twice in three centuries was taken, was captured. So that also gives us a clue, doesn't it, in terms of what the Lord Jesus, because the people knew that history. And so the Lord Jesus, you see, as he's going to be calling the church to task, He's going to say, he's going to use military terms. He's going to say, you watch, be watchful. Don't be asleep, be watchful, lest you fall as a church in the same way that the city fell. In terms of the city's religion, its essence lay in the adoration of the life of nature. The adoration of the life of nature, nature worship. Life apparently subject to death, but never actually dying, but reproducing itself in new forms. Considerable emphasis in Sardis on healing power, including the belief that by means of certain hot springs, the dead could be raised to life. So this city was a very proud city, a military past. It was a very proud city which thought quite highly of itself, but now it was on the decline. In terms of the church in Sardis, not much is known about it, but it appears that Paul was instrumental in founding it, and the Apostle John may have served as one of its ministers. Notice the introduction to the text, verse 1 of chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write. We've already established that here the angel is a picture of a messenger or perhaps numerous messengers, that is to say the presbyters, the elders, the pastors, the preachers, those that bring the word of God to the angel of the church in Sardis write. Who's, who's saying this? Jesus. What is he saying? These things, says he, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits of God. You know, one of the, uh, one of the young people from this area was asking me, happened to be here on Wednesday, was saying, seven spirits, I thought God was a trinity. That was a good question, wasn't it? Well, the seven is not a reference to how many persons there are, the seven, seven spirits, is a reference to perfection. 
It's a way of saying that God is perfect. That's the point here. Christ, you see, possesses the fullness of God in all of his attributes and all of his energies. And what we also need to realize, because you remember, he says here, I, you know, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Please remember here that the spiritual life of the church comes from him. He is the one, Jesus is the one, who searches out our depravity, our sinfulness, our wickedness, with those eyes, as we saw in chapter 2, with those eyes like flames of lightning, those eyes that can see right through us. He sees everything about us. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? He searches out who we are. Jesus didn't have to have anyone tell him about man. He knew what was in man. John chapter 2. So he searches out our sin. He knows our needs. But he's also the one who applies grace. He's not only the one who can diagnose the problem, but he can also bring the healing. He applies grace. He does so as he convicts, as he convicts us of our sin. Oh, our sins, our sins rise up against us, do they not? He convicts us of those. But then at the same time, he purifies. At the same time, he, he brings about healing in all those ways. He is the all-knowing and all-powerful Lord. He is the one who never sleeps. He is the one who is always watching, guarding, dare I say, rebuking. And so he is the one who has the seven spirits of God, but he is also the one who has the seven stars. From chapter 1, we saw this term refers to the angels of the seven churches, and therefore Jesus Christ himself has these officers, as it were, in his hand. And he has them. That is, he possesses them. They are his. He is the one who from his ascendant position on high sovereignly gives good gifts to men. He is the one who leads captivity captive. Psalm 68. And so he is the one who gives to the church all that she needs in terms of of her growth, in terms of her liveliness, in terms of her being alive, in terms of her spiritual life. Jesus is the one who does all of that because he is the one who has the seven stars in his hand. Now, if that is the background, then, we come today to the problem and the exhortation. The problem and the exhortation. And this is found, first of all, in terms of the problem, this is found, first of all, in verse 1. Right up front, Jesus says, I know your works. I know your deeds. Christ, as we've already seen, is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Now, in other letters, this phrase, I know your works, has been used to praise the church. I know your works. I know all the good things you're doing. But here, my friends, it is used as a condemnation. I know your works, and this is, they, this is not good. I know your works. Why? Because you have a name that you are alive, 
your debt. Your debt. The church had a reputation for being alive. Why would it have that reputation? Well, first of all, the very fact that it named the name of Christ. The very fact that it named the name of Christ. So that's a good thing, rather than denying the name of Christ, obviously. It may have been also the church had been known in past days for its service. Like the city, it was resting on past laurels, on glory days far behind them. But undoubtedly, there was still at least some activity in the church, seems to be indicated here. But it was, in fact, dead. It was dead. Now, this comment was directed first to the elders, including the preacher. You see, they should have been, the preacher should have been, enthusiastic in there in his work. They should have been enthusiastic in their work. They should have been those who were giving themselves to the study of Scripture and to prayer. They should have been those who were instructing the people in the things of Christ. They should have been those who were comforting the afflicted, afflicting the comfortable, and admonishing the unrepentant. But instead, the implication here is that they are unfaithful. They fail to watch over the flock as they should. They displayed great apathy rather than fervor, no enthusiasm rather than being enthusiastic. They had no zeal for the Lord's work, and the work became a burden and not a joy. You have a name, you're alive, but you're dead. And let me say that this is something that we who are elders need to be careful about. Because one can get weary in well-doing. One can get weary, one can get lazy spiritually. I speak to myself. And so it is something whereby we who are officers, we who are elders, pastors, preachers, need because it is so easy to let those little cracks in that rock face, if you will. Remember the cracks where people could climb up surreptitiously, secretively? It is so easy for those cracks to appear and for the enemy to be able to climb up and for us not even to know it. But the church, too, was dead. Notice verse 2, the the critical part here is the last part of verse 2. For I have not found you completed in the sight of my God. I have not found you completed in the sight of my God. Now the church in Sardis was active in one sense. The people were doing some works. But the problem was that they were not full or complete. Now let's be clear. No one can claim sinless perfection. That's not the point here. The people of Sardis were not even coming close. 
the phrase here of is, is actually my God, in sight of my God. Jesus is the all-knowing God who comes to search the mind and the heart. Here he speaks of my God. These incomplete works were before the face of God. Sardis's church, then, was not performing very many works, whether they be deeds of mercy, deeds of worship, deeds of instruction, deeds of evangelism. But furthermore, whatever the Sardian Christians were doing, whatever they were doing was being done without much real love, zeal, fervor, or enthusiasm. But there's another problem, as we see implied in verse 4, and that is that they had soiled their garments. They had soiled their garments. You see, Jesus says you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, but the implication is that the rest had. The rest had. They had gotten polluted by the world, even as blood or filth, mud, muck, would stain one's clothing, so they were defiled. And they were also dead. But notice the exhortation, and the exhortation comes to us be very clearly to wake up. There comes the exhortation to wake up. One cannot forget the military nature of the city. For guard to sleep on duty, for guard to sleep on duty was to be derelict in duty. You could be court-martialed or worse. It had twice been captured, the city had twice been captured, because both literally and figuratively the defenses had been sleeping. The, the term here is very striking and powerful. It literally means become watching. Become watching. The Christians in Sardis had become drowsy in their walk. They needed, therefore, to be roused from their slumber before disaster comes upon them. Even as we read today from Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14, Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Even so, they needed to be roused from their slumber so that they could be watching. But not only that, the exhortation also says, and strengthen the things which remain, which were about to die. There are a few good things still present, but they're about to die. Therefore, the people must work to shore up those things, to strengthen those things. Again, a military figure being used. In verse 3, we have another exhortation. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Therefore, refers back to the phrase that their works were not complete. So I want to pause here just a moment and ask, do you remember how you have received and heard? Do you remember? Older person, younger person. Do you remember how you used to be zealous for the faith? 
Do you remember how your heart used to be stirred? How the tears would come to your eyes as you heard of Christ and His dying love for you. But now, these things no longer move you. Remember how you have received and heard in the past. Remember, this is part of the exhortation to be stirred up and remember the days of old. And then Jesus also says, and guard, and guard, or hold fast, and guard, a military figure, keep on your watch, guard it, and finally, and repent. And repent, this sums it all up, does it not? Repentance, my friends, is always the answer. So I have two very brief points of application today. The first is this. My friends, if you are asleep today, wake up. Wake up. Are you spiritually asleep? Are you sort of sleeping your way through life and through the Christian life? Then wake up. Wake up. Jesus is saying, wake up. Watch. Strengthen. Remember. Guard. Repent. Wake up. But secondly, how do you do that? Well, my friends, wake up by looking to Christ in all of his wonder and beauty. Wake up by looking to Christ in all of his wonder and beauty. You know, you can be sort of drowsy about something, but then something maybe catches your eye. Maybe you're watching television and, you know, you're sort of falling asleep. And all of a sudden, you see something on, on the TV that catches your eye, that to wake up suddenly, to become alert. And so it is here. We must wake up and see Christ as he is the one who possesses the seven stars in his right hand. He is the one, furthermore, my friends, who we need life. Well, my friends, he is the one who has life within himself. And he brings that reviving power to you. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Wake up. Wake up. And see Jesus. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And now, our Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would apply this word to our hearts and all for the glory and honor of thy Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we wake up out of our slumber, out of our stupor, out of our drowsiness, out of our laziness out of our lackadaisical attitude. Father, we pray that we might be revived again. Oh, send thy spirit, Lord Jesus. Pour out thy spirit upon us. Revive us again. We pray, Lord, in thy name. Amen.